In the fifth chapter, or the fifth verse of Hebrews chapter 12, we have a passage from the Old Testament in the book of Proverbs that says, You have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. Why do bad things happen to God's people? This afternoon we heard an explanation about evil, and I'd like to continue on from that. There is around us in the world a view of Christianity that is quite foreign to Scripture. There is a prosperity gospel propounded on television and elsewhere that Christianity leads to wealth, health, and comfort, and if you suffer, it's because you're weak in faith. Somehow you're not claiming what's rightfully yours because Jesus will solve all your earthly problems if you're right with him. I don't think anybody here believes that, but how do we view it when bad things happen to us? We all face this. Man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. Just as surely as sparks fly up off a fire, trouble's going to come. And it's very important for us to have a perspective and answer the questions to the extent allowed by the little information we have. This book that I read from is addressed to Hebrews Christians who had become alienated from friends and family, likely fired from their jobs, hated by those who used to love them, and shunned by the mainstream of the Jewish nation, simply because they were Christians. The writer of Hebrews wants them to understand that there's a process going on here. And it's not a process that should surprise them because it's a very old process. In chapter 11, he talks about the heroes of faith all the way back to Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets. These faithful people suffered various difficulties. The idea that God's people should be above suffering is a sad dishonor to all those faithful, noble believers through the ages who have suffered severely, suffered persecution, suffered martyrdom. The world was not worthy of these people. Were they people of weak faith? Was their suffering because they just didn't trust God enough? Where was their prosperity? These are the heroes of the faith. What about the Christians who torched up Nero's nighttime garden parties? They suffered immensely. Was their faith weak? Sometimes the more faithful they were, the more they suffered. Jesus said, in this world you shall have tribulation, John 16, 33. Bad things have always happened to God's people. When you belong to God, you're going to have trouble. That's how it is. So he's reminding the Hebrews of that. In chapter 12, verse 1, we have a great cloud of witnesses to the validity of a life of faith in spite of its difficulties. The difficulties in verse 5 are called the chastening or the discipline of the Lord. He's saying, you're not the first people to go through this. It just goes with the territory. The difficulty the Hebrew Christians were having were pushing them back toward Judaism. Some of them were turning their backs on Christ. From their viewpoint, their difficulties were pain. But from God's viewpoint, the difficulties were discipline. And everybody here tonight, I think, wants to understand this from God's viewpoint. This word in verse 5, translated in the King James as chastening, 
probably in our time should be translated as discipline. It's from paideia, a Greek word from which we get pediatrics, pedagogy. It's the Greek term for children. Idea is a very broad word, embracing both the positive and the negative aspects that are involved in the training of children. Any effort made toward children to cultivate their soul, whether it's teaching good or correcting mistakes or curbing passions, this is a full-orbed term for training a child to love the right and hate the evil. So it's true that time and chance happens unto all. It's true that the devil afflicts the likes of Job, but underlying all of that, it's also true that it's the sovereign God who allows the time and the chance. It's the sovereign God who allows the devil to afflict. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's involved with his creation. Not a sparrow falls without his knowledge. So even though God does not cause a specific thing, he can use that thing as training. And we need to look at it as God's perspective and see it as training. Training for those who have rigorous tasks to perform, whether militarily or athletically. Right now, I'd like for each of you in your own mind to think of a particular suffering on the part of a child of God that's going on right now, here or elsewhere. Think of a particular suffering on the part of a child of God and ask yourself, why would God, who could prevent such a thing, allow such a thing. God has purposes for our suffering. And we can see at least four possible reasons for the discipline of the Lord in your life and mine. This is a very personal thing. I can't begin to look at you and say, oh, I know why that's happening to you. I don't know why it's happening to you. I don't know why it's happening to me. But look with me at four possible categories. And I'll just place these on the board. Category one is retribution. One possible reason for discipline is because of our sin. Is there sin in my life? Sin is bad for us. God corrects us for positive purposes. This was the case with David. David was guilty of adultery and murder, and the floodgates of discipline opened upon him. He was told, David, the sword will never depart from your house. There will be consequences for your behavior. David's baby died, and coup after coup after coup came against David, including the one led by his own son Absalom. And David suffered the pangs of guilt. The 32nd Psalm talks about his life juices being dried up, his blood flow, his saliva, his tongue cleaving to the roof of his mouth. His whole body ached. His nervous system was compromised by his anxiety and his sorrow over sin. And finally, he burst forth in confession. Psalm 51 shows his penitence. David finally got the message. The sweet singer of Israel wrote more inspired psalms than anybody else as the man after God's own heart. But it took some immense correction to create an aversion to sin and drive David back toward righteousness. So this is the place to start. Self-examination will ask, is there some sin in my life? Job lived during the patriarchal time. The book of Job could have been written even before the book of Genesis was. Job was among the best men of his time. At the time, he lost everything. 
Job had never read the first two chapters of Job. They hadn't been written yet. He didn't know about those conversations between God and Satan. So he didn't know what was going on. He knew everything had gone wrong in his life. He knew he was hurting. So Job did a self-examination and he didn't find any habitual sin that needed correcting. His friends came by and sat for seven days in silence. Then they opened their mouths and they revealed their theology. Job, if you've got problems, it's because you've got sin. Well, that's not always true. His friends added to his pain by accusing him of that, which was untrue. Job took a personal inventory and he knew he wasn't guilty. David took inventory and he knew he was. God was correcting him in love. So when you're asking why, retribution is one place to look, but it's only one. Don't get stuck there. Prevention is another. We don't see God bringing retribution into Paul's life for some sin Paul was harboring. He wasn't perfect, but he fought a good fight. He kept the faith. And he suffered. Boy, did he suffer. Second Corinthians is full of it. He was built, bitten, uh, eaten with whips and rods and shipwrecked and stoned and left for dead. He was hated and despised and thrown into prison. You know all about the life of Paul. Was that for his sin? Second Corinthians 12, verse 7 talks about his thorn in the flesh, which could be like a stake or a spear. Lest I should be exalted above measure, he said. That's not retribution. That's prevention. Might God allow something into your life to prevent you from the sin of pride? If you get to feeling too self-sufficient, if you get to feeling almost omnipotent in your life, able to control everything in your little world, might God allow something in to humble you? Paul had had visions and revelations. He was caught up to the third heaven and heard unspeakable things. He had seen the ascended Christ. So for pride prevention, the messenger of Satan was allowed to buffet Paul. After you've looked at the retribution issue, you might want to look at the prevention issue. Is the Lord just helping me to remember that I don't have another breath? Unless he gives it to me. Do I need to be reminded that I'm not the master of my faith? I'm not the captain of my soul. I don't call all the shots. That in God I live and move and have my being. Do I need to be reminded that God's strength is perfected in weakness and that when I am weak, then I am strong? Does God allow pain to wall us off from something that we might otherwise have done that would have been against his will? Who knows what ways he protects his children? God only knows. Paul said he prayed three times for the Lord to take that spear out of his body. And three times the Lord said, no, Paul, because you need to be humble to be useful to me. Paul suffered through his whole Christian life. There's another category to consider. Education. Experience makes a difference. One reason God allows bad experiences is so that we may experience His sufficiency. In those experiences, we learn whether or not God is enough. And the great illustration of this is Job. Everything went wrong for Job. He had lousy friends with wrong answers. His wife said, curse God and die. So his friends are telling him that he's the problem, and his wife is telling him that God's the problem, and Job doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know why bad things were happening to him. 
because God didn't tell him because that was a part of the test. It's not up to you to know why a bad thing is happening to you. It's enough to know that God loves you and wants the best for you. You may believe it's retribution, but you won't know for sure. If it's prevention, you may not know what was prevented because it's prevented. But what did Job learn? God didn't say, okay, Job, I'll tell you what's going on. I had a conversation with Satan, and I'm allowing this to make a point to him. Didn't tell him that. You know what God did say to Job? Shut up, Job. (laughs) Just shut up. Who are you? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Just be quiet. And Job apologized for having spoken unadvisedly with his lips. He said, I don't know any more than I know. I don't know any more now than I knew when I started, except for one thing. He said to God, I had heard of you with the hearing of my ears, but... I had not really known. I, now my eye sees you. Probably he didn't have any written scripture or very little in his time. I don't know any more now than I did when all this started, but I had heard of you. I'd heard who, who you are had been told to me, but now my eye sees you. What happened to Job? He got a personal private education. He was tutored by God and he graduated. Is God able to sustain a man who loses everything he has? Job can give you the answer to that. The answer is yes. Is God able to help you overcome stupid advice from your friends? Is he able to overcome misdiagnosis of your problem? Yes. Is God enough when you're sitting in pain that goes on and on without relief? Yes. There's still a place for peace, joy, and confidence in your heart. Job would never have known that if he hadn't experienced it. And in the end, he said, I have uttered that I understood not. I repent in dust and ashes. God forgive me. I didn't like the trip, but I'm glad I've learned what I learned. Can God sustain you when your children die? Can God sustain you when your wife turns against you? Job said, now I see you, God, in a way I never, ever did before. And Job came to a truer understanding of himself and a greater understanding of God than he had ever had. He learned who God was and he learned who he was. And everybody should learn those two lessons, and if we don't learn them one way, God may teach them to us another way. Job also had a new sympathy for other people. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1 that God brought me through my suffering so I could teach you how to suffer. I became educated so I could help you, he said. And the real education is in the pain itself. If you've never had a certain kind of surgery, you don't have the personalized understanding of somebody who has. So Job is an illustration of education, just as Paul is an illustration of prevention, and David is an illustration of retribution. But I have one more I want to mention to you. Anticipation. Anticipation. The Lord may allow us to be disciplined just to loosen us up from the attachments of planet Earth and to increase our anticipation of heaven. The more difficulty we go through in this life, the sweeter heaven becomes. And the Apostle John is an illustration of anticipation. Here he was an old man exiled to a rocky island of the Aegean Sea. He wrote the seven churches of Asia, five of which were riddled with sin. He was living through a time of persecution. Christians were being killed. All of the apostles except John had already been martyred. And things weren't going well in the church at the end of the first century. And the Lord spoke from heaven and said to John, come up here. 
Come up here. I'll show you things that shall be hereafter, including the things you have to look forward to, John. And any Christian in distress can understand that. What does John say at the end of the book of Revelation when Jesus says, I'm coming quickly? John says, Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, get me out of here. That's anticipation. As you go through life and accumulate all these vicissitudes and struggles, all the sorrows and pain of life, heaven becomes all the sweeter, doesn't it? Romans 8 says we wait for the redemption of the body. 1 Corinthians 15 says we long for this mortal to put on immortality, for death to be swallowed up by life. Paul had a desire to depart and be present with the Lord. That's anticipation. When bad things happen to God's people, it may be for retribution, prevention, education, or anticipation. In that 12th chapter, the 5th verse of Hebrews, if we're told that if we don't take suffering in this way, then we have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to us as sons. Do not despise the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. Quotation from Proverbs 3, verse 11. Have you forgotten what the Bible says, he asks. The writer's appeal is to the word of God. If you want to see your troubles from God's viewpoint, you have to look at Scripture. If you look at your troubles from the world's viewpoint, you're going to be entirely miserable and you're going to be completely wrong. The Bible is the court of appeal for every issue. If you want to understand life, the things written aforetime were written for our learning, Romans 15, 4, that we through endurance and comfort of the scripture might have hope. Notice in chapter 12, verse 5 of Hebrews, this is addressed to you as sons. No matter whether you're male or female, you're sons from the standpoint of inheritance. This is addressed to you as sons, as God's children. It's for you. It speaks to you. It speaks for your good, for your ultimate glory. God's loving discipline produces in us the greatest usefulness for God and the greatest fulfillment for us. In this text, we see two perils in discipline, true proofs in discipline, and two products in discipline. First of all, the perils. We're all going to be disciplined, and God wants to accomplish something in disciplining us. It's not for naught. He wants to conform us to the image of Christ. But that only works if we avoid these perils. There are two things that are dangerous to the purposes of God in discipline. First thing he says is do not despise it. That's to lightly regard the discipline of the Lord. That means to misjudge it. Treating it as lightly rather than profoundly. Consider the real purpose of it, the real scope of it, the real aim of it. See discipline not as a momentary affliction, but as an accomplishment that God is bringing to pass for your good and for his glory. There are many people who have a hard time ever seeing past the pain. And it is hard to see past pain when you're in it. One time C.S. Lewis was writing a book about pain, but he got a toothache. He said, I wish my tooth would quit hurting so I could write another chapter about pain. It's hard to see past it at the time. We get self-absorbed, we get self-centered, we get caught up in our own comfort. Some are surprised by it because they think Christianity is a blank check for anything they want. And when they don't get it, they get angry. People fall sometimes into callousness also. Hardened against God, resistant of God, rather than melting at the discipline of God and examining their own hearts. You get angry at God and you cut off the purpose of God from being achieved in this discipline and perhaps guarantee to yourself even greater chastening. Not only by callousness that you can treat God's discipline lightly, but by complaining like the children of Israel in the wilderness, griping. People get cross with God. They get sour against God. They fret and fume as if God doesn't know what's, what's he's doing, what's going on. 
Sometimes God perhaps chastens twice or harder if we're not humbled by the first one. Just remind yourself of how much dross there still is yet left among the gold in your heart. View the corruptions of your own heart and marvel that God has not smitten you more severely. Count your blessings and that your trials were not really what you deeply deserved. Questioning can take the Lord's discipline lightly if we do it with the wrong attitude. Why me? Why this? Why now? Maybe the most common way we treat God's chastening lightly is by carelessness. I mean a failure to change. You go on in your sin and on in your selfishness. In any or all of these ways, we can treat God's discipline lightly. We can look down on it. We can think little of it and not see it for what it is. Suffering is not a trivial thing. We need to use it well from God's perspective. Don't despise it and don't waste it. The second thing he says is don't faint when you're reproved by him. This is still in verse 5. Don't faint when you're reproved by him. So don't break out against God. That's the external. But also don't break down. That's the internal. Some people don't get calloused against God. They just they don't question God. They just kind of collapse. They give up and become inert. They begin to doubt God's love and wisdom. We need to take Psalm 42 to heart. Why are you troubled, O my soul? Why are you troubled in me? Open God. I will yet praise him. We need to pull ourselves up and get back to work. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but they're over when we die. You only have to do this till you die. If you know what your purpose is, you can handle the setbacks. But if you don't know what your purpose is, then any setback can lead to total collapse. Despise not and faint not. Don't break out and don't break down. These are the two perils in discipline that hinder what God wants to accomplish through it. And then there are two proofs, two things that are proven by this discipline in verses 6 through 8 of this same Hebrews 12. Sometimes Satan is the victor in our trials based on how we respond. If we take trials with despair and despondency, then instead of trust, doubt comes. Instead of quietness, turmoil comes. Instead of contentment, resentment. Instead of hope, Bitterness. Psalm 10, verse 1. Why standest thou afar off, O Lord? Why hidest thou thyself in times of trouble? But the Lord is not hiding himself. David found that out. We find that out too. The same psalmist says that the Lord is a very present help in trouble. There are two proofs that should lift us up. The first thing your suffering proves is God's love for you in verse 6. That's the reason not to think lightly of his discipline or to become callous, careless, or questioning. His discipline is an evidence of love. When you came to Christ, you were rooted and grounded in love. We love him because he first loved us. We should have a settled assurance of God's love for us every day. The foundation of our lives is that God loves us. God so loved us that he gave his only begotten son to forgive your sins and mine. God loves me. That's an assurance that nothing should ever be able to shake. A a man asked a little boy, why are you looking over the wall? The boy said, because I can't see through it. And at some point, discouraged Christian, you need to look over the wall. And when you do, what you're going to see is a loving heavenly father. Life can be like that, that you just can't see through the wall. But you've got to look over that wall. Look above the dark clouds of discipline and see the sunshine of his never-changing love. Like a flying on a plane through the dark clouds of a storm and you suddenly hit that brilliant sunlight. What a change that makes. Behind the clouds is the love of God. He loves you and all discipline flows from God's love. 
He loves us so much that he corrects us. He withholds from us what would harm us. How many times have we said to children, I'm doing this because I love you. And then we spank them. And that's true. That is why we do it. We love them too much to get, let them get away with disobedience. Lamentations 3.32 says that if he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. If he does not afflict, for he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men to crush them under his feet, all the prisoners of the land. God doesn't do this because he gets pleasure out of it. If God did enjoy our suffering, he wouldn't have to do anything because we would cause ourselves enough pain just through our own iniquities. God does what is painful to him, and he does it out of love. Our great high priest is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He feels our pain. Psalm 63, or Isaiah 63 says that in all their afflictions, he was afflicted. Like a parent, I hurt when my children hurt. And yet at times I spanked them because love demanded it. Love is unselfish. And even though it hurts to afflict pain, it sometimes does so because it's love. The first thing proven by God's discipline is God's love. And the second thing is our sonship, also in verse 6. Every son in the family will be scourged, he says, flogging with a lash. Every son, no exceptions, but only sons, not those who are not his children. God deals with you as sons, according to verse 7. And you know what the Old Testament book of Proverbs said about this. He that spares the rod hates his son. He that loves him chastens him many times. Chasten your son while there is hope. Don't let his soul spare for you. Don't let your soul spare for his crying. Foolishness is down in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from him. He goes on and on with this. Discipline in the Christian life doesn't come in spite of sonship. It comes because of sonship. It's not some aberration. When I see a lady in the aisle at Walmart spanking a little boy, I conclude that she's his mother. Why? Because it's the parents who do that. That's evidence of sonship. Don't envy those who you think don't suffer. Verse 8 says, if you're without discipline, you're bastards and not sons. Don't envy that. The supreme act of disdain for a child is indifference because you don't care. Finally, there are two products in discipline. Verse 9 says, be subject to the father of spirits and live. The first product is life. In contrast to Deuteronomy 21, we're talking about sonship here. In Deuteronomy 21, we see what God thought of disobedient sons and how they should be treated. And they they were not allowed a long life. So the first product of the discipline is supposed to be life. Obedient children were and are very important to God. First product is eternal life. The second is in verse 10, that we may share his holiness. God wants us to hate sin like he does. He wants us to think twice about doing it again. Be ye holy, for I am holy, he says. Hosea 5.15, in their affliction will they seek me early, God said. So let the rains of disappointment come if they water the plants of spiritual life. Let the winds of adversity blow if they serve to root more securely the trees God plants. Let the sun of prosperity be eclipsed if that brings us closer to the true son of God. So we count it all joy when we fall into various trials. The carnal senses object to this as we have in verse 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. That's an understatement. We don't find joy in the trial. We're not masochists after all. 
We often can't see the prophet at the moment. And yet, he says, yet to those who have been trained by it, here's the key word, afterwards, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness or holiness to those who respond rightly to it and avoid the perils of breaking out or breaking down. As the bee sucks honey out of a bitter flower, so faith can extract blessing from trouble. So faith can turn water into wine. So faith can make bread out of rock. It hopes and it says triumphantly with Job, even though he slays me, yet will I trust him. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. It's in our pain and not our pleasure that we learn the deliverance of God and are made to know life and holiness. I want to close with one significant thought. Mary went to the tomb of Jesus. She stood at the empty tomb and she wept at the very thing that was ultimately designed to bring her the greatest joy, the resurrection of Jesus. They have taken the body of my Lord away and I know not where they have placed it. She didn't understand. And so she was crying. She had the present view and not the afterward view. Now, there are times that we can't keep from weeping. And if you need to weep, I think you should go right ahead and weep because that's cathartic. That's the way he made us and he knows our frame. But in the midst of your weeping, don't only weep. Don't weep at the very thing that God can use to ultimately produce your greatest joy.